Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by the East Baton Rouge Parish School System, inspiring humanity through transformational learning in the classroom and community. Initiatives like Pathways to Bright Futures allow students to graduate high school with an associate degree or an industry-based credential along with their high school diploma. More information at ebrschools.org. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugar cane, Three Roll is cane to glass. From Mansur's on the Boulevard, we're out to lunch with Stephanie Regal. It's business, Baton Rouge time. Hi, I'm Stephanie Regal. Welcome to Out to Lunch. There's been nothing short of a revolution in the way we do business over the past 20 years thanks to the internet. It's killed some industry sectors, disrupted others, while at the same time creating all sorts of new opportunities. Local entrepreneurs have come up with some amazing ways to take advantage of these opportunities. They've also managed to adapt and hang on in the face of constant change. With me today to discuss this is Jerry Pearson, owner of Pearson's Travel, Baton Rouge's oldest and only family-owned full-service travel agency. Jerry has owned the agency since 1981, when he founded it as an offshoot of his Pearson's Luggage and Gifts, which he had opened in the 1970s. Travel was different back then, and so was retail. But over the past couple of decades, the Internet has changed all that. Now travelers can book their own flights and hotel stays online or even plan their entire trip, and they don't need to go to a brick-and-mortar store to buy a suitcase. Those are among the reasons why Pearson closed his luggage store in the summer of 2021 and sold the building to a local healthcare company. But he continues to operate the travel agency, which, and this is in keeping with the national trend, is doing quite well. See, turns out a lot of people don't like dealing with orbits and travelocity. And if you're not on a tight budget, why bother? Nationwide travel planners are proving themselves resilient in this age of online everything. And Jerry is here to tell us how he's done it. He's a native of Mississippi who got his start in the travel world working as a gift wrapper over Christmas break at a luggage store in Mississippi. Jerry, it's a pleasure to have you here on Out to Lunch. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. With me and Jerry is Chris Cummings, owner of Pass It Down, an interactive storytelling platform with a library of templates and cloud-based interactives that customers like companies or nonprofits or institutions can use to create digital storytelling experiences. Chris founded the Baton Rouge-based company in 2015 after he saw his mother battle MS and early-onset dementia and wanted to create a way to help his family and other families capture and pass down their memories. Since then, the company has evolved and grown, and from it, Chris has created a new company, Iconic Moments, which is the first NFT marketplace for museums and cultural institutions. An NFT marketplace is what exactly? Well, it's a digital platform where non-fungible tokens, the NFTs, can be stored, displayed, exchanged, and even minted or created. And that's about as much as I know, and Chris is going to tell us the rest. Fortunately, he is an expert and also an attorney, so he's really good at explaining things. He's also a seasoned entrepreneur. Chris, thank you for joining me on Out to Lunch. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, I'm glad y'all are here together. You know, new businesses, old businesses doing all sorts of really cool things. Jerry, tell us what's going on in the travel agency to, in the travel agency business today, you know, sector and and people could can do everything online, but 
a lot of people don't want to, and there's still very much a need for what y'all provide. Well, we feel that there's a, a not only a great opportunity in what we do, but there's a great service to the community. Uh, travel agency business went through a tough, tough two years, travel and leisure, entertainment. However, since the beginning of the year, our business is back to blowing and going. Uh, we've, uh, we've been extremely busy, a lot of bookings both in North America, uh, a lot of bookings in Europe, and so far the, the problems that have gone on with uh, the Ukraine have not affected travel at all bookings for the future. Well, that's fortunate. And the two years you're talking about, no doubt, are, are COVID. But, I mean, even if you go back to, to say, you know, really the onset, I guess, in the early 2000s mm -hmm. of the online everything, mm -hmm. um, that forced a lot of adaptation, I suppose, in the way y'all well, do Well, it has. But, you know, we, we pride ourselves and have built a reputation on service. And if you've ever tried to book with one of the big boys and you had a problem and you weren't the only people that had a problem, a problem you can't get them on the phone and you can't get them to help you to solve the problem well this is quite true <laughs> and uh when when you call and you work with a local travel agent you got a face that you can put with the the voice on the end of the phone you know that when there's a problem you can pick up that phone and they're going to work on your behalf because we make money off of commissions that the cruise companies pay us we do charge, if we're booking an airline, we charge a service fee for that because the airlines cut out, our, cut out our commission quite a few years ago. When they cut out our commissions, we gave up a quarter of a million dollars worth of commissions in one year, and uh, yet we were able to survive. And the way we survived is we provide that customer service that's over and above. And, we did and, that with our luggage stores as well. And, and I love this. I mean, it's a great jumping off point because here you are talking about a real person on the phone who can provide customer service. And here Chris's company is selling non-fungible things. So like they're not even real and we're trading them on some sort of currency platform that's not, re not real either. It's such a contrast. Ironically, yes and no. I mean, uh, McDonald's, for example, just uh, filed a patent to be able to create a digital version of McDonald's in the metaverse where you could order real food that would be delivered to your home, but it would take place in a digital space. Uh, so it's the interlinking of physical and digital together sometimes crosses a bridge you wouldn't think, but it still is possible. Wow. So, so explain to us better than I did what an NFT is and an NFT marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. So NFTs are non-fungible tokens. Uh, they are a uh, essentially a unit of data that exists on the blockchain, which is a, a shared ledger system. Uh, the way that most people commonly think of NFTs, though, is through its application to collectibles. So, for example, every decade has their collectibles. I was born in 87. I'm a child of the 90s. Uh, our collectibles in the 90s were trading trading cards, Pokemon cards, Beanie Pokemon Babies. Pokemon cards, sure, sure. Um, and so, for example, the NBA launched a NFT platform called NBA Top Shot that allows you to buy a digital pack of trading cards. Uh, you don't know which one you're going to get. It creates that same gamification and excitement around opening a pack. Uh, and then those cards have various rarities associated with them. So you could buy a $10 pack of cards and that card would be worth $100,000. Uh, and then you have the ability to be able to exchange that card, sell the card, 
And the biggest uh, benefit of the NFTs as a whole is that provenance and ownership are built in. You can see when it was originally created, who it was created by, what the, the amount was it was created for, and you can trace its entire history of every transaction that's ever happened to it since. So if it's resold 70 times, you can see who bought it, when they bought it, how much, and trace the value and ownership of an item. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I mean, in terms of its, in terms of what it looks like and its value as, as a piece of art or at least a unique you know, image of whatever, whoever's on that trading card and whatever's written on it, is it good looking? What does it look like? And yeah, do you it, look it, at it on your screen, on your computer, or your phone? Or it comes down to each organization that's creating those NFTs. I mean, an NFT can be anything. It can be a video, audio, photo file itself. Uh, it could be a 3D model that could be displayed in a digital space or a metaverse. Um, you know, our work is in taking historical artifacts and creating limited edition. Uh, lithographs or NFTs for museums based on some of the most important moments in history and creating fundraising tools for it. And, and they're beautiful. Uh, NFTs themselves, though, can also be displayed in a lot of ways people don't know. It's not just being able to view it on your computer, but uh, you could buy a NFT frame that you could put in your home. The same way you would display a piece of art, you can display NFTs from your crypto wallet in your home itself, and they're purely digital. Uh, you, if you're a business or a museum or an art gallery, you could have an entire exhibition space of 65 inch screens displaying your NFTs. Uh, so there's a, a variety of ways you can do it, but they're, they're pretty captivating. And, and so the NFTs are not like images of an ancient Rosetta Stone or something in your museum. It's actually something that's been created around it, that. Maybe. It depends, you know, it depends. So we're working in our instance, um, you know, we stand out from the rest of NFT marketplaces that are out there. Most people joke about NFTs because they uh, know about crypto punks and uh, generative whales and penguins and random animals. We're working with top level cultural institutions to take historical artifacts. So it could be a, a radio clip from World War II. Uh, it could wow. be a uh, painting from one of the most famous painting painters in history. And then we will create a digital edition of that um, that is beautiful, uh, but also uh, has the ability to function in some unique ways. That painting might give you a lifetime membership to the museum it comes from. And then the painting itself might not just be a, a photo of the painting, it might be a 3D model of that painting that you could place into a digital home or a digital building uh, in a metaverse. So there's a million things you can do with it. We try to really stand apart by focusing on respectable kind of timeless pieces. Wow. How do you keep from having people duplicate in the metaverse what you've created so that it, it doesn't cease to be one item, but people have knocked it off and sure. created you know, the interesting thing, I mean, it's a, a really good question, is that the same problems that exist in the metaverse are the same exact problems that exist uh, with all of our physical locations. You know, what keeps somebody from going up to the Mona Lisa and taking a photo of it on their camera and then turning it into a set of T-shirts or postcards? We have uh, various legal systems in place from trademark, copyright, patents meant to enforce IP protections across various areas. Those same rights have to be uh, used digitally the same way you would physically. And then um, all value is just being able to prove original ownership. So someone may be able to make a digital copy uh, of a painting, for example, but you can look at the metadata and trace it back through the blockchain and prove it may be a digital copy, but it's not the real one. Your metadata 
uh, data bank? Is it just like the crypto system where everybody's information is feeding from computer to computer? Uh, well, yes, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky, right? By dealing with museums, you know, an artifact might have anywhere from 60 to 120 pieces of metadata associated with it that we can build directly into the blockchain. The reason the blockchain is so valuable is that anything that's placed on the blockchain is publicly accessible and it's decentralized across hundreds of thousands of nodes or servers at the exact same time. And that's what we mean by a shared ledger is... Uh, it's impossible to take down, and you can look at that system always to to determine uh, what's real and what's not real. Um, so, you know, our work is working directly with the museum, and we function a little bit like the blue Twitter check mark. It's to say, like, if this says it's from the National Broadcast Museum, it is. It's coming through Iconic. We work directly with that museum, and we are verifying uh, that this is who they say they are. Fantastic. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's a... Uh... It's a whole new world. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Stephanie Regal. I'm talking to Chris Cummings of Pass It Down and Jerry Pearson of Pearson's Travel. Jerry, when you talk about it, you know, it, it being a whole new world, what are some of the changes and adaptations that y'all have made in the travel agency world? You know, because obviously you're not dealing with blockchain and no, crypto. No, uh, we belong to the world's largest and greatest group of travel agencies. Mm -hmm. It's a group called Virtuoso. They're worldwide. They're out of uh, the Fort Worth area, the corporate office. It's owned by a gentleman by the name of Matthew Upchurch. And uh, he has been extremely uh, energetic in the industry. Uh, We have consortiums that our consortium works with all of your major suppliers and if you book a cruise which is a virtuoso cruise you'll get amenities that you don't get just by booking it directly or by possibly booking it with Priceline or somebody else Uh, he has created alliances that he put we through him and through virtuoso we put out publications uh, three to four times a year featuring all kind of information that you would get in basically travel and leisure, except it is catered more to our own clientele. And, and who is your clientele? Is it mostly wealthy and older, or is that you know an unfair assumption? Is it? Well, i tell you, if you had asked that question two years ago, I would have probably have said it was the older, more wealthy clientele. But a lot of the younger people, once again, are starting to feel the impact of the va- the value that is provided through using an agency okay. and using our people. So we're getting a lot more younger people that are fed up with trying to use the Internet to book it and not having anyone to hold accountable. Uh, once again, it gets back to service, but uh, no doubt... Th- we do a big job with Viking cruises. We do a big job with AMA, AMA cruises. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are mostly uh, cruises that are in the waterways. Uh, we do a huge job with Regent Cruise Lines. We used to do a, a decent job with Crystal Cruise Line, who just went bankrupt, leaving uh, millions of dollars owed to passengers. Fortunately, we had no one that was in that situation. We fought hard last year and got all of the money back for the people who had booked and had 
cancellations. But anyway, we've got personal relationships, and when when they when something happens and you're a virtuoso agency, it's not just Pearson's Travel World that they're they're concerned with. They're concerned with the whole organization, because if they get a black eye with one of us, they got black eyes with thousands yeah. of agencies that mm-hmm. uh, that form the group. So, uh, innovation-wise, not a lot of things have happened other than personal relationships. So interesting. Chris, who are, are your customers? You know, I mean, is it, um, I guess it's, it's mostly institutions since you're a marketplace for museums? So when you're building a marketplace, it's two-sided, right? So the B2B side of this, the supply side, is working directly with top-level or uh, museums, and historic brands. So mm-hmm. think Fortune 500 companies that have really incredible rich history sure. uh, itself. And so we work directly with those institutions in three ways. If you are sitting on an archive or a collection of content, you might have 50 million artifacts in your collection. Of those 50 million artifacts, if you had to choose three to start with the turn to NFTs, what would those three be? And so we use uh, industry data to be able to help curate that. Our, our design studio then helps to transform that into the NFT itself through uh, our blockchain marketplace. And then we're responsible for marketing and driving the entire campaign, which is really needed because most museums don't know how to participate in the space. On the consumer side, uh, the buyer itself uh, is a blend of those that are already participating and engaging in NFTs. So those that have already bought NFTs before. Uh, in addition, though, Because we're dealing with museums, we have a huge opportunity to help bring a lot of new people into the NFT space that have never participated before. Uh, Your museum patrons, lover of the arts, lover of history and culture. And so we're helping them to be able to engage in a new way of fundraising and support for the institutions they love. And so if I bought an NFT of some, you know, piece of history or culture that I love, I would be able to take it home and put it in one of those digital frames or I would have Correct. it on my phone or I, and I would have this ownership in whatever it's worth? Correct, yeah. So I think it's important to note we're not a selling original ownership of anything in a museum. I think that poses some some ethical quandaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're instead uh, creating lithog- lithographs or limited edition runs of items within, which museums have done all the time as a fundraising tool. So it would function both as a collectible, a way of you being able to display a piece of artwork you like, uh, but you might also be able to take it into the museum and scan it to function as a ticket or to be a member uh, or to give you access to an annual gala or a kind of a special event. How did you get into NF- How did you get into this field? Specifically NFTs or museums? Well, both. Or both. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, the original uh, vision for the company, uh, as Stephanie shared at the start, was uh, digital storytelling for families. My uh, mom, unfortunately, had gotten really sick with both MS and then she developed early onset dementia in her 40s. Uh, I was my mom's caretaker. And the idea to do storytelling at all came when a doctor told me when I was 18, you know, your mom has maybe six months left to be able to talk. Spend as much time learning your mom's story as you can. And I really appreciated that. Uh, But when you're 18 at LSU eating off the dollar menu, uh, I tried to hire a biographer and I couldn't afford it. And so I was just really struck that everyone wishes they could go back and talk to someone in their life. Uh, And Facebook and social media didn't really capture that very well. 
So a few years after my mom passed, I had the idea to start the company to focus on storytelling for families. And as we were building and scaling that solution, this little lady walked up to me. She's now one of my dear friends. And uh, she said, I, I know you're doing this for families, but I want to license your technology to tell the story of my entire city. And so, uh, you know, that lady was named Corinne Hill. She was the director of the Chattanooga Public Library System. And she had just been named American Librarian of the Year for her work in uh, innovating Dallas's library system. And so she really took us under her wing and showing like there's an entire world of culture of libraries and museums and universities uh, that are stuck using antiquated technology. And this thing you built to tell stories for families can do stories for everyone in such a bigger way. And so, you know, a week after we announced the Chattanooga Project, a museum outside of Chicago reached out. A week after we announced that museum, Coca-Cola reached out about corporate storytelling. And it was just a series of dominoes, fortunately, that fell all tied around storytelling, the value of storytelling in history. And then uh, we expanded into NFTs when we saw the economic model behind museums fall apart during COVID, which I imagine you saw very similarly in tourist destinations. I mean, if you're not the MoMA, the Met, or the Louvre, if you're not sitting on a $100 million endowment, the only way you know how to make money is is in person. Mm -hmm. Someone has to walk through the door and buy a ticket, rent your space for an event, or attend a once-a-year gala. And so the revenue for 98% of the world's museums literally went to zero. Uh, 25% of museums today have less than four months operating cash to survive. There have been wow. tens of thousands of professionals in this industry laid off. I mean, some museums are running at 5%, 10% staffing of where they were, and it might take five years for them to recover if they can survive at all. So our entry into the blockchain was the notion that like the model behind this whole industry is broken, and it's not sustainable. And so what does a digital-first model look like? How can we make a museum drive revenue and, and grow even if someone never physically walks through the door. That's really the mission behind what we're doing. And so this will grow way post-COVID. I mean, this will continue to evolve and redefine the way that the whole museum world operates. We think this is the future of museums. Uh, you know, since we announced what we're doing, we've had outreach from, uh, from museums across 12 countries. Um, and you know, the NFT industry is the fastest growing industry in technology history. I mean, we went from 200 million in transactions in 2020 to 27 billion transactions in 2021 to 7 billion in transactions just in January. Um, there's never been growth like this within tech. So, uh, no, not, not you, but I mean, how, do, how are people making money off of this? And, and where does the real card currency interact with this, you know, uh, virtual marketplace or whatever we're talking about. So to do the digital transaction, you're taking, you know, dollars, you're converting them into a cryptocurrency uh, that could be uh, Ethereum, Solana, Tezos. Uh, there's a variety of options. And then you're actually purchasing and doing a transaction within the, the digital space. Um, those transactions are split apart across a variety of different uses. So some is in the collectible space, but some is in very normal things like ticketing, uh, supply chain, um, verification of identity. I mean, the blockchain itself can, can do a lot for almost any industry in the world. Wow. Jerry, um, when, you know, when you hear these stories and you think back to your, your retail and luggage store, which was just sort of an iconic retail institution in Baton Rouge, has it been hard to, to not have that, that store anymore? Or was it hard to let it go after 
so many years in such a beloved business it, it locally. It has been extremely hard uh, when you live and dream something and you, like Chris is doing with what he's doing, and, and I applaud him because he's a generation that's different than the generation that I grew up. Uh, I loved what I did, and to go to work every day was a pleasure for me. Taking care of customers, making them happy, selling them a $1,000 suitcase or selling them a $200 suitcase. I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I wanted the customer to be happy because if they're happy, they're going to come back. We're going to take care of them. And we built a, we built a wonderful business through the years. The Internet itself killed us because our vendors became smart enough to realize that they could bypass us. The vendors would sell directly to the consumer. They would come into my store, look at the product, go back, order it online, have it drop shipped to their home. Mm -hmm. Then when it was broken, you know what they did? They come knock on your they door. They came to fix knock it. on my right. door for me to take care of getting it serviced. But we hung on long enough and we, we would still be in business, but uh, in your opening remarks, you said we sold the building. We did not. We leased the building to Eisner. Uh, but it gave me an opportunity at, at 75 years of age to walk away from an industry that I loved and was passionate about. And it opened doors that I don't know that I would have had otherwise. But Oshner came knocking and the door was there and we opened it. Well, unfortunately, you still have the travel agency. Oh, yeah. And uh, the Internet didn't kill that. And that's no, so interesting. It, how it, it, it shaped it, but it did not yeah. kill it. Uh, so, you know, we still, we're still in business. We, uh, we still can special order luggage for customers if they would like. Uh, and we still are, are here to serve the Baton Rouge community. Well, but I, I loved what we did, what I did. And it, it was a wonderful business and glad you still are serving customers. Jerry Pearson and Chris Cumming, it's so interesting to meet entrepreneurs who have invented and reinvented themselves and adapted their businesses to meet the changing needs and whims of the marketplace. Baton Rouge is fortunate to have you both. Thanks so much for taking time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. My guests on Out to Lunch have been Jerry Pearson of Pearson's Travel and Chris Cummings of Pass It Down. You can learn more about Pearson's Travel and Pass It Down by going to our Out to Lunch Baton Rouge podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch Baton Rouge podcast anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, it's batonrouge.la. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsbatonrouge.la and on our Out to Lunch Baton Rouge social media. Photos are taken by Eric Otts. You can find more of Eric's photos on Instagram at, at acro, that's A-C-R-E-A-U-X. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsbatonrouge.la and WRKF 89.3 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Today's show was engineered by J.T. O'Neill. Our associate producer is Peter Rusciutti. And our Baton Rouge business consultants are Charlie D'Agostino and Ann Edelman. I'm Stephanie Regal. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you around the table at Mansour's again next week for more business Baton Rouge style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch Baton Rouge is recorded live over lunch at Mansour's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge. Mansur's is open for lunch daily, 11 to 2, for dinner nightly, and for brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. 
Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by the East Baton Rouge Parish School System, inspiring humanity through transformational learning in the classroom and community. Initiatives like Pathways to Bright Futures allow students to graduate high school with an associate degree or an industry-based credential along with their high school diploma. More information at ebrschools.org. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 